Well, I was asked to do something on parenting, (laughs) which is a big subject. Uh, Some of you may know that Grace Community Church has what we call a Parenting for Life um, seminar. It's it's nine lessons, usually give over four sessions, um, and it lasts for about six hours worth of teaching. So we obviously don't have that much time, but we're going to give you some of the highlights, really some of the essential parts of what God says about parenting. Um, So I wasn't necessarily asked to condense that down to one teaching, but I do want to concentrate on what I think is essential. And today is supposed to be a great encouragement and challenge uh, to you. And I do want to give you some of those essential thoughts and directions that will lead you and your parenting to be an act of praise to God. Now I put this whole session together first just by asking um, some of the parents here at Grace Church and actually some other other churches, um, I asked the question a variety of different ways, but essentially, what would you want to tell your, your peers about parenting? What do you want your, your, your peers to do in parenting? How would they be encouraged? How would they be challenged? What, what do you want your peers to know about parenting? And probably the biggest response I got was parent, like the verb, like you all want each other to parent your children. Now, what I thought funny in that is that you all said the same thing. So you all think you each other need to parent your children. Now, I'm going to think the best of you all and believe that you're humble enough to know that you yourself haven't arrived in your parenting, but you know the benefits of good God, godly and wisdom and wise parenting, and you want the best for your brothers and sisters. You just all want your kids to be blessed and to be a blessing to each other. And you also know that you indeed have a responsibility to parent, and that's how we came up with the title of this session, Bring Them Up, God's Direction to Parents. So a simple definition of parenting actually is one who brings up and cares for another, and that's the one thing that you are to be faithful to, that the goal of parenting is to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. Let me say that again. To be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. So successful Christian parenting starts and stops with your faithfulness to God's direction for you. The goal is to be a faithful instrument, to be a faithful steward. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, in all of our life. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And in the context of our lesson today, to be stewards of God's blessing of children. So we are not focusing on the results of your children. We are focusing on the means. So the behavior of your child is not the success of your parenting. It's not the measure of your parenting. Now, your response to your children and your effort towards your children is, though, So your success as a parent relates to how faithfully you carry out your charge, not how well they receive discipline and instruction. So success in parenting is measured by what the parent does, uh, what parents do, not what the child does. So what are you to be faithful towards exactly? What is God's direction to parents? Well, we know from Ephesians 6, 4, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So this is the directive which will help us reach our goal of being faithful biblical parents. This is what we are to be faithful to do. Now, parents are a child's primary God-given authority and source 
of training. And that's the way it's always been from Proverbs 4. Hear the instructions of a father. That's what's always been. So let's look at what the essence of God's direction is. And that's found in that key phrase from Ephesians 6, 4, bring them up. So this means to rear or to bring to maturity, to provide, to support. Here in Ephesians 6, 4, it would convey tenderly caring for the child by providing what the child needs for maturity. Namely, what a child, children need are discipline and instruction. Now, the language in Greek um, is very telling exactly what this term means, what the essence is. And it's in the active voice, meaning you parents bring them up. In other words, kids don't bring themselves up or others don't bring them up. It is you. You bring them up. And that's from day one. Now, that would be opposite, or the opposite would be passive parenting. And why do parents become passive? Why are you passive in your parenting? Well, it's sometimes it's because of our, our own sin and wrong thinking about what is required of us. Practically, it's probably because we're lazy or too busy with other quote-unquote things, maybe even ministry. A passive approach to parenting results in many excuses for the child's behavior. So excuses such as what? Saying it's a passing stage or blaming it on circumstance or sickness or a disorder. And some will just outright ignore their child's foolishness and disobedience. Just pretend it's not there. Some refuse to believe that their children misbehave. Some excuse that poor behavior as cute, or they just, again, they just don't deal with it. And some think their children are too young to learn. Most often, many parents don't believe discipline works. They say, I've tried that. Or way too often, they don't like conflict, or even more, that they're afraid of their children, even their, mostly their older children. Now, parenting is simple. Who agrees with that? Raise your hand if you agree with that statement. Parenting is, parenting is simple, but what is it? It's not easy. It's hard work, right? It's not easy. It's hard work, and it must also be consistent. Spurgeon said, never promise a child something and then fail to give it, whether you promise him sweets or a spanking. And one writer said, consistency in parenting is saying only what you mean and meaning everything that you say. So it's consistency in your parenting. It's also consistency between mom and between dad. And you must have the same ideas about discipline, especially the use of the rod or corporal punishment. You must function as a team. So in addition of being active, bring them up, it's also in the present tense. That uh, conveys a continuous action, meaning continuously bring them up. Keep at it. Don't stop. It's an all-day, everyday thing. As I used to say to all my folks at work, um, because I used to run the water system for the city of Los Angeles, kind of a big, important thing. People go like this to their tap and no water comes out. That's, that's a really bad thing. So we had to be on our game every day. And I said, every day is the Super Bowl. All right? So it's every day, all day. Parenting is work. But if we do it continuously and consistently, it is manageable. But if we wait until later when we are ready or think our children are ready, the sheer number of issues just build up and they'll become overwhelming. Finally, it's a command. We don't have a choice, all right? God's direction to parents is a command. You've been given the authority, and you are expected to use it, and he's given you all the resources you need. You all know 2 Timothy 3.16, but have you ever thought of it 
in the realm of parenting. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, that's just the good definition of what parenting is. So it's, it's for that good work, that good work of raising children. So that's the essence of God's direction. What about the execution of God's direction? Well, there's two key words found in Ephesians 6, 4, and we must understand them to fulfill God's direction to parents, and they are discipline and instruction, or nurture and training and admonition. Now, interesting, again, when I asked your peers what they would tell other parents, most often it also included discipline, that you wanted to see each other discipline their children. What does that mean? Well, this word has more than one use in the Greek, and in the context of 6.4, Ephesians 6.4 can best be explained under the general heading of training. So parents are to systematically train their children. Now, the methods or tools used to fulfill the intent uh, of this term include a variety of things. It includes guidelines, restrictions, reward, correction, structure, and setting expectations. So it's way more than just punishment or chastisement. So when I use the term discipline, it's not just the latter. It's a bunch of other terms as well. And it is in this training that establishes a framework upon which foolishness is torn down and good habits of wise living can be built. That's the structure we're giving. We're tearing down a foolish structure and building a wise structure. So parents must examine areas of a child's life, such as their daily routine, their use of time, relationships, responsibilities, to help their children learn what are wise choices of behavior. So that's the discipline. You're disciplining their use of time, their relationship, their responsibilities, their daily routines, etc., etc. J.C. Ryle, who was a preacher in England, um, his ministry was in the late 1800s, said, If then you would deal wisely with your child, you must not leave him to the guidance of his own will. Think for him, judge for him, act for him, just as you would for one who is weak and blind. But for pity's sake, give him not up to his own wayward taste and inclinations. It must not be his likings and wishes that are consulted. He knows not yet what is good for his mind and soul any more than what is good for his body. You do not let him decide what he shall eat and what he shall drink and how he shall be clothed. Be consistent and deal with his mind in a like manner. Train him in the way that is scriptural and right and not in the way that he fancies, end quote. So Ryle said that this is the first principle of of Christian training and that self-will of the child is the first thing that appears in his mind and and it must be your first step to resist it. One pastor said, teach your children to obey and use discipline. Actually, our pastor, not one pastor. <laughs> not just any pastor, our pastor. He said, teach your children to obey and to use discipline to reinforce because God says punishment, sometimes physical punishment, done in love is a strong corrective. That way your children learn to obey their parents. And check this, if they learn to obey their parents and their parents are advocating the law of God, then they will learn to obey the law of God. And if they learn to obey their parents, they will learn to submit to their parents' authority. So you as parents must teach your children obedience. That is our most obvious and basic responsibility. If we are to raise our children to live righteous lives, they must first begin by obeying their parents. Now the fundamental point to make here however, is that discipline is not only for the purpose of shaping a child's behavior, and that is good and right, but is also a means by which a parent points a child to his need for Christ. 
How is that? When a child fails, up to, fails to live up to the standards, the disciplined life that you're framing for them, which he's taught, it is then an opportunity to explain his need for a savior. So I, I think I'll say this a, a couple times this morning, maybe three. At the same time, you're to be an antagonist of your child's sin and an advocate of the gospel that can save their soul. So you're supposed to be at antagonizing them over their sin, but at the same time being an advocate for the gospel that can save their soul. Don't be afraid of your kids. Love them instead. Love them by confronting their sin, by driving foolishness out through rules and structure. Think for them to teach them to think for themselves. And how is that? By and through the word of God. Though many parents avoid this part of the responsibility, they must at times oppose their children. But it is conflict with a purpose. And that's the purpose we just said, to show them their sin and their need for a savior. Now, the other key term we must consider and understand is instruction. And that is a specific term. And unlike the general term discipline, this word is more specific. Literally, it carries the idea of putting into the mind. And sometimes it's translated admonition. So through verbal admonition, encouragement, advice, and warning, we instruct our children about the character and deeds of God and what he requires of them. So this is a lot more verbal. God's word is the tool he gives us to teach our children, and with it we appeal to them when they stray from what is right. And this really is what makes our parenting of the Lord. And as our children mature and they understand, we teach them God's great attributes and what our response is to him should be. But we must also bring the truth of his word to bear in their trials, in their difficulties, and in their disobedience. And scripture is a powerful sword which convicts a person at the deepest level. And what deepest level is that? Say it if you know it. The heart, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as we bring up our children, there must be an appropriate balance between discipline and instruction. And that balance is going to shift depending on the age and the responsibility of your child. So there's a lot more discipline, you know, structure, correction, and then they become more um, responsible. And then there's a lot more um, correction, excuse me, a lot more instruction. That is admonition, building in inner convictions through teaching as they get older. But you must teach them and train them in everything. H. Clay Trumbull, who was actually on this continent, a a contemporary of um, Ryle said, it is largely a child's training that settles the question whether a child is graceful or awkward in his personal movements, gentle or rough in his ways with his fellows. This is (laughs) a different time. Considered or thoughtless in his bearing towards others, whether he raises objections or is capable of being easily led within the bounds of due restraint, whether he is methodical or precise or unsystematic and irregular in the discharge of his daily duties, whether he is faithful in his studies or is neglectful of them, whether he is industrious or indolent in his habits, whether the taste which he indulges in his diet and dress and reading and amusements and companionship are refined or low, in all these things his course indicates what his training has been or it suggests the training that he has missed. There's a third term in Ephesians 6, 4, and I don't want to uh, ignore the first part. It says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we are not to provoke our children. We are to discipline and instruct, 
we are not to provoke. So scripture is clear with the use of the conjunction but. So it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, kind of as an answer, or an alternative, or the opposite, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So that is the most obvious way to frustrate your child. The, the most obvious way to frustrate your child is abdicating your responsible responsibility by consistently discipline, disciplining and instructing your child. So parents who ignore their responsibility to fulfill all that bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord means, or who don't take the responsibility seriously, run the risk of provoking and exasperating their children. Children need the training and teaching that their parents provide. And when they don't receive it, they may be prone to frustration since their parents really don't care to bring forth the type of effort it means to bring them up. Parents who are inconsistent, irregular, or unpredictable in the training of their children can be guilty of provoking their children to exasperation, to the point of resentment. And this comes from, in part, not maintaining involvement in your child's life. This is the nurturing side. So this would include uh, neglecting or ignoring your child. Children aren't aware of the sensitivities of your life and the burdens of your life. So you do need to be willing to spend time with them regardless. Involve yourself and be nurturing. It also includes not visibly showing love for your spouse, but instead arguing, not showing affection, being condescending, being indifferent towards your spouse. Essentially, any sense of instability between mom and dad can cause a child to be provoked to exasperation. Now, we're going to develop this point a little bit more, but the direction is clear in Ephesians 5, but we also read in Ephesians 2, 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Provoking your children also includes not visibly showing love for your child. 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. In other words, don't just say that you love your child. Be about the doing in that love. Do visibly demonstrate your love for your spouse, but you must also make sure there's no doubt in your child's mind that you love them. If you're going to be a biblical parent, then you must be the conduit of a tremendous amount of encouragement. And like us, our children love to be challenged and encouraged about how they're doing. And like us, they're helped when they know that they're making progress. Unfortunately, there can be a lot of criticism in the home, right? But we want to encourage them when they do well, such as when they make wise choices, when they acknowledge their sin, and so on. Now, a big victor view of this uh, is to train and encourage them to love the home by establishing a loving home, a rock to ground them when the filth of this world hits them, like friendship or other kind of influences. It's establishing a trusting relationship in the home. So God's direction is to bring them up, and the essence is in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and that really as a countermeasure to provoking them to exasperation. Now, all of that was just an introduction, okay? I'm going to tell you right now where we begin and end in parenting for life, and we're actually going to begin today where we usually end. Um, in, but in parenting for life, we really begin with a big picture, three things. And this is really, there's a lot going on. I understand you parenting your children, a lot going on. But there's some big picture kind of narratives that I want to remind you 
of and just make known to you. And this kind of gives sense to maybe what is the chaos or the trial that is parenting. And the first one is that your parenting is all done to the glory of God. Parents and those of you that are married spouses, parents and spouses are to stand up and stand out for who God is and what the gospel does. I mean, you are a tremendous example of God's grace in your life as parents, as spouses, to the world around you, to your neighbors, even to others here in the church. So as you know, you're figuring out how to get your kid out the door for church, um, how you're just going to do one of a million things throughout the day, understand there's a, a bigger thing going on, that God has put you in this situation so that you would give glory to him by living out your marriage and your parenting. The second thing is, big narrative that's, that's going on, and we already alluded to it somewhat today already, is that you are pointing your child to their need for the Savior. All right? I understand that there are just things that need to be get done. There's a task list every morning, every week, every month. You have goals in the year. But a big picture thing that you need to remember is that in all of your parenting, God is using your parenting, using the situation that what's ever happening, that tantrum that's on the floor, whatever that is, God is using that, using you as a parent to point your children to their need for a Savior. And the third thing is your sanctification. God is using your parent parenting is using you in that role, putting you in the place where you need to be faithful to him as a way to sanctify you. Now, that's how we begin in Parenting for Life. We actually end with Psalm 145. And as I said, I want to start there today. And I want to use Psalm 145, and you can start turning there, as a lens through which we can view our responsibility to God's direction in parenting. Now, a little... um, pro tip here is that we basically end with the same picture in Parenting for Life, so we're actually going to probably say some of these same things again, that you're doing this for the glory of God, pointing your child to their need for a Savior, and all of this is for your sanctification. But um, in the end, uh, but with the end, um, I should say, when we end Parenting for Life, we, we note out that there is a great reward in this long haul, all right? there, And we talk about the sanctification, that there is personal sanctification or personal growth throughout all the days, weeks, months, and years of your parenting. Romans 8.28, Pastor John said it this morning, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. So God is using your children in the process of your sanctification, and children serve as a mere for their parents. Someone someone once said, I didn't know how impatient I was until I had children. So parenting stretches us in many ways in our understanding of scripture so that we could be obedient to it, our trust in God, and in holy living. Knowing that, that it stretches us, we must teach our children what we ourselves are living causes us to be constantly aware of our own failures and sins. So we know that we're being sanctified and that should be great motivation for us to raise our children as well. And this recognition drives us to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. Thus, we change and we grow. And what a joy to know that the Lord is using every parenting experience to confirm us in his own image. So in those long 
dark days of parenting. You guys there? Right? All right? Just know that God has ordained them all, each one, each moment, for your growth. And that, and through that growth, there is divine satisfaction. There is joy in pleasing God and praising God as a biblical parent. He is pleased because you're endeavoring to further his own redemptive purposes by influencing successive generations to worship and glorify him. That's that big picture, standing up and standing out for God. And primarily the audience is your children because you are also there as an advocate of the gospel. Point them to their need for a savior. And while you're doing that, you're being sanctified. That's all those, all three go together. So you can devote yourself to no greater or more fulfilling enterprise than molding and shaping your children for usefulness in the kingdom. And that'll stand out in verse 4 of Psalm 145. Let me just read the entirety of the psalm, and then we're just going to break it down and use that as an outline to bring up, again, some essential things that we should know in parenting. Psalm 145, I will exalt you, my God, the King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation will praise your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. People will speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They will burst forth speaking of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works, and all your works will give thanks to you, O Lord and your godly ones will bless you. They will speak of your kingdom and of your might to make known to the sons of mankind your mighty acts and the glory of your majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generation. The Lord is faithful in his works and holy in all his works. The Lord supports all who fall and rises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry for help and save them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but he will destroy all the wicked. My mouth will speak the praise of my Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So I want to use this psalm of praise, this response to the greatness of God, as a lens with which we can view how we are to live out our faithfulness to God's direction to parent. All right, so we're going to use this as an outline. And the first thing there is we want to parent with humility. Parent with humility. Psalm 145 says, I will exalt or extol you, my God, my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. So to bless your name ever and ever or to extol is to lift God high, meaning not ourselves. So what that means is we are to subject ourselves to God before we would ever lead our family. That's our posture in a sense of humility, submitting to him. Bless means to praise, to adore, to figuratively 
virtually kneel before God in your heart because you can't praise God if you think you yourself are high. You're not at God's level. Again, it's an issue of humility. Hey, we're all just trying to be faithful servants, to that faithful thing, to be a faithful instrument unto God to raise our children up according to biblical principles. That's where this fits in. The guy that's writing them, this is who? It's King David, the anointed king of God. God anointed him as his king. And he himself says that he will humble himself, that he will bless, extol, and praise God. That's where we start. Second is to resolve commitment to honor God. It says, every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So this is a commitment David is making. And commitment is a logical response to saying you're humble and you want to bless um, the Lord and that you call and praise on his greatness. So we should do everything to the glory of God. No one lives a godly life by accident. We need to resolve to do so. We need to commit to doing that. We for sure need God's enablement and that through prayer and his grace, but it is to be an everyday, all-day pursuit on our part as well. So I'm making some parallels here already that we're humble in our faithfulness, right? That we don't do our own agenda. We're faithful to God to be an instrument to him. All right, we need to be resolved to um, work for him as parents every day, all day. That's a commitment. And in terms of parenting, parents must look at God's truth and his work in their entire lives. And the Bible provides teaching that is comprehensive. So in humility, I first submit myself to God's rule in my life, and then I commit myself to bless and praise him and his name through my life. And that's going to be one of the biggest themes through the rest of this morning, is that we're praising God through our lives, and we're parenting through our lives um, to obey God and to enjoy him forever. You see, parenting is not an entity unto itself. In other words, parenting is not the hub of your life. Your priorities do not revolve around your parenting. You do have priorities as parents, but they should be seen as commitments in order to be a biblical parent. And primarily, you have a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a commitment to love Jesus, okay? You're no better a parent than you are a spouse, than you are a child of God. So your parenting and your commitment to your spouse begins with you being a child of God. Your parenting, your influence on your children begins with you, or more specifically, with your relationship with Christ. That's where your parenting starts. Our main priority is a commitment to the Lord Jesus, and this should be taken as a priority to his word. We should have a high view of scripture. The question is, does your life reflect this? Examine yourself, folks, whether you're biblically ignorant or worse, biblically indifferent or sinful or just maybe outright disobedient. It starts with biblical ignorance, though, lacking depth and real insight of God's word, not digging into God and his nature, his character, his will, and his mind. Parents that are described as such are, of course, hypocritical, and they're falsely propping up their marriage and their parenting. And for parents, for many parents, the first step towards getting back on track to biblically parenting must be a fresh commitment 
to do the things of God for themselves. So take inventory of your own hearts. Do you thirst for God as a deer pants for water? Or is your own life sending your children a message of hypocrisy and spiritual indifference? Is your own commitment to Christ what you would hope to see in your children's lives? That's a hard question to answer. Is your own obedience or is your obedience to his word the same kind of submission that you want to see in your children's lives? Is your obedience to his word the same kind of submission you long to see from your own kids? So I urge you to examine your heart before God and take a thorough spiritual inventory of how well you're, you're dealing, not merely as a parent, but as a child of God. No better a parent than you are a spouse, than you are a child of God. You need to live up to the truth that you teach. Therefore, parenting assumes that you are progressing in sanctification. And if you're not, kids will pick up on your hypocrisy. So parenting, again, is as much about your sanctification as anything else. Train up the way a child should go, Spurgeon said, but be sure to go that way yourself. Mark 8.36 says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? And we may say forfeit the blessings of a godly family and children. What really matters to you? Where is your treasure? You can build your life around the right answer to that. What are some maybe practical ways to live out this commitment within the life of your family? Well, obviously affecting your personal time in God's word, being shaped by God's word. That means reading his word daily, pondering it, memorizing it, understanding its meaning, and of course, applying it and obeying God's commands in his word. In some way, we need to do that all day, every day. You need to know God's word and ponder the principles of its word, its meaning. Uh, Family Bible times doesn't have to be complicated, but it should be regular, simple. Commitment to Sunday corporate worship and fellowship of the saints as um, a way that God's, and it is God's way of sanctifying us as we minister to each other. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says in part, we, we come together to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to serve each other and to be served by each other. That's how we grow. None of us coast into spiritual maturity, but we come by the means of the church. And just ministry, church, be a part of it. Raise your family by it and in and around it and be blessed by children's and student ministries. We could summarize this commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ by saying we must be committed to the word of God. And this is how we come to know who God is, how he thinks, and what he requires of us. First Thessalonians says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of mere men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is also at work in you who believe. So committed to the word of God and be committed to the God of the word. So this is directly linked, obviously, to the word of God in that the best way to know God, to know Jesus, and the only, is to know Jesus, and the only way to know Jesus is through the written word of God. We're going to talk about John 14, 21, but it, it's talking where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And he says, love is defined by obedience, but also love for him. And he, Jesus, must be the hub of our faith and our life. One pastor one time asked the question, have you made Christianity something of a way of 
a way to live or a person to love. So parenting then is just living your Christian life out before your kids. Can I get an amen from that? Right? It really is like that. It's living a Christian life that says by its word and its life, Psalm 145, 2 and 3, it says by its word and its life, every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Your life should live out those words. Thirdly, we're to have a passion to influence the next generation, a passion to influence the next generation. Verses four through seven, one generation shall praise your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. One glory on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. People will speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They will burst forth in speaking of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. This attitude that just jumps out of that, this passion is what makes your parenting of the Lord. Why do we parent? Why does God give parents the direction he does? So your children may come to know and love God and then pass this on to others as well. Newsflash for all of you. You're all going to die, and you're going to be forgotten. All right? How many of you know more than a paragraph about your grandparents? More than a sentence about your great-grandparents? We're long and lost, forgotten. But verse 4 is the only thing that matters, right? Is that you pass on from one generation to other, that you praise God to another generation. Living rightly as a believer, living rightly as a believer, you are part of something bigger. That's what I've talked about before, is God uses the means of your parenting. That was one of our big picture themes. We are to stand up, stand out for God. Have your kids seen you worship? Do they know that you love a living God? They must watch you worship God. You must teach and live a great God. Now, education is just a means to an end, but personal exaltation of God must also occur. Many of you heard me say before, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. It is the parent's responsibility to commend the works of God. Now, yes, the church come alongside and partners with the family, but you can't delegate the education and exaltation to the church. This is where your personal faithfulness and commitment come to matter that we've talked about already. In other words, doctrine sets the nail, but example drives it home. Now, those verses we're talking about standing up, standing out for God, worshiping God. Now, we were all made to worship, and your kids will, were made to worship um, intrinsically, and they will praise what they foolishly desire if you don't show them the truth first. They will bow down. They will bow down and serve their treasures. From their heart, they will submit, they will submit, but they will submit to their own idols. And they will continue in their foolish way. The world is extolling the greatness of sin. The world has its own Psalm 145, and it extols the greatness of sin. It praises its splendor and the awesomeness of sin. And you need to do more than just be on the defensive. You need to be on the offensive. In other words, don't polish your children's idols, whether they'll be sports or gaming or social media, beauty, popularity, friends, acceptance, independence, etc., etc. You need to provide 
discipline in their lives, and their hearts need to change. And you are in a battle for your child's life. So I want to look at discipline as a means to a new heart for your child. Discipline and parenting as a means to a new heart. Again, discipline is rules, structure, expectation, guidelines, restriction, and correction. It is discipline and parenting is a means to a new heart that ultimately can itself praise God from one generation to another. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. As long as you are in the position of control over your child and even beyond, you are to correct them for a purpose, for a very specific purpose. Again, the direction of our children of all men is to chase their own sin and foolishness to spiritual death and everlasting hell. And the world not only provides a highway to that destination, but a supercharged vehicle of cultural enticement to get there. And this fact must capture our attention and drive us to correct our children. J.C. Ryle said as well, remember children are born with a decided bias towards evil. And therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. The mother cannot tell whether her tender infant may grow to be tall or short, weak or strong, wise or foolish. He may or may not be any of these. It is all uncertain. But one thing the mother can say with certainty, he will have a corrupt and sinful heart. It is natural for us to do wrong. Foolishness, says Solomon, is bound in the heart of a child. A child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Ryle goes on to say, Our hearts are like the earth in which we tread. Let it alone and it is sure to bear weeds, end quote. Now, lest you think discipline is in the form of correction is hate, it is not. It is loving. Proverbs 13, 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son. So the focus of our biblical instruction and correction is help to help our children become obedient disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can't save them by our parenting or make them more savable, However, we can and must create an environment where God does the work, where he brings about salvation. This is the supreme motive that guides our correction. And we must discipline, and we must discipline under God's authority. And children, as they grow, must know where to find truth. And if it's not taught and modeled often, if you demand control in the home, and you don't bring the balance of instruction into their life, they won't know where to attach your control. They won't know the basis from which your control arises. They won't know where to find the source of an ultimate truth. Therefore, they will have no ability, nowhere to attach and build inner convictions. So if you love your son, you will discipline him. You'll reprove him. You'll rebuke them. A rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. And when your son doesn't do what you want him to do, out of rebellious attitude, you use the rod. And Proverbs were to drive the rebellion in the hearts of our children far from them. And this is discipline, obviously done in love. It's done for the purpose of conforming your son to wisdom, to the breaking of self-will, for the purpose of removing foolishness, for delivering the child from spiritual death, and for the purpose of making him a delight to his parents. So please note, because I know some of you might be getting antsy, me hearing using the term rod. 
uh, Proverbs 29.15, you might want to underscore that. It says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to his own way brings shame to his mother. So it's the rod and reproof. It's words as well. So we don't only have the rod, nor do we only have to use the rod. So how does this discipline creating a new heart work? Well, it exposes their inability to keep God's standard and his need for a savior. And it leads us back to the focus of our training. It leads us back to the truth. In discipline, we stop the present direction of our children. That's the defensive part. But more importantly, we bring our children to their need for Christ. That's the offense part. It leads us to declare God's mighty acts and his majesty. And it is by this perfect standard that God judges the world. Pastor John also quoted this this morning as well from 1 Peter. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's our standard in the home. Now, when the child doesn't meet God's standard, you can lovingly correct them, interact with them about the condition of their heart. You should be glad when your child sinned because it just opens their heart. And you can ask them questions. Why did you do that? And listen for the answers. And then tell them and be ready to tell them of the Christ that can forgive them. Any individual that's going to come to Christ must realize his hopeless condition apart from Christ to be saved. And since obedience is ultimately a matter of the heart, right, rather than just simply external behavior, external behavior is nice, but obedience is about getting at the heart. The wise parent looks for opportunities to demonstrate the need for true inner change. And when a child fails to submit and obey to parents, Parents can teach them about their own depravity, human depravity, and their need for a savior. This is the way it works. If you have no standard in your home, and you may have seen families that have no standard, then there's no sin. There's no sin to trip over. No standard, no sin. If there's no sin, there's no need for a savior, right? Because there's no penalty of sin because there's no sin. If you have a low standard, meaning if it's just externals, and you've seen those families as well, and maybe sometimes you kind of fall into that, where you just, you just want your kids to obey and you're not spending time on their heart, that leads to uh, Phariseeism or maybe just moralism, all right? Just conforming to a, per, uh, a particular external standard. Again, there's no sin in that. That's, and therefore, there's no need for a savior. But if you have God's standard in your home and you're bringing that towards your kids and you're being an antagonistic of their sin, then sin abounds. Sin abounds. And where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds. And there is a need for the Savior's grace. This is uh, the same as the Mosaic laws, which were not given as a means of salvation, of achieving righteousness, but of describing God's righteousness and showing the impossibility of man's living up to it. And similarly, the Mosaic sacrifices were not prescribed as a means for atoning for sin, but of symbolically pointing to Jesus Christ, who himself became the sacrifice for sins of the whole world. Now, many parents, including some of you, may think that applying strict behavioral standards combined with discipline is the answer. But teaching your kids manners and applying punishment for wrongdoing is not the answer to their depravity. Depravity is a heart issue. If you major in just correcting the externals or threatening discipline for misbehavior, you will be doing little more than raising what? Say it loud. Hypocrites, right. That is raising kids, kids to respond one way. Maybe that's morally 
right, but in their heart they are still wretched sinners. Again, depravity is a heart problem. One writer said, morals are good, but not in and of themselves. We need to reach and pray for a morality that flows from a heart changed by God's grace. For many, the default is to slip into morality parenting rather than Christian parenting. The former is focused solely on outward behavior, the latter on inward change, which will manifest fruit in moral outward behavior, end quote. So the issue in biblical parenting is primarily internal, dealing with the child's heart, not only his behavior. Now the law, God's law, the divine standard of right and wrong, magnifies sin. And the parent's concern should be to help the child understand his sin through exposure of that law and how it reveals a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. A child must understand the tragic outcome of such sinfulness in this life and also future punishment in hell. Again, at the same time, you're to be both an antagonist, that means opposing or contending of your child's sin and sinful condition, and at the same time, an advocate of the gospel that can save his soul. That kind of teaching leads to the cross of Christ and underscores the need for the work of the Savior. Getting back to Psalm 145, that kind of parenting tells of his awesome acts, right? That's the advocating the gospel part. That's the advocating Psalm 145 parenting, right? Tell of his awesome acts, his abundant goodness in salvation. There is only one answer to cure your child's inborn depravity, and that's regeneration. It's to be born again with a new heart and that by the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, parents are not to discipline their children merely to change their behavior. The chasing that we've been talking about helps conform our child's minds to wisdom. It removes foolishness from their hearts. And chastisement and reproof will drive the foolishness that's bound up in their hearts far from them. Now remember, parenting begins with your relationship as a child of God. I want to bring all these back to you. You know Deuteronomy 6 well, and in 6 and 7, the parent's responsibility is defined, and it focuses with your heart, all right? So this is Joshua telling the Israelites what God has commanded him to say. And he says, these words shall be in your heart. So before you tell your kids when they rise up and sit down, etc., these words shall be in your heart. So parents whose own hearts are cold and devoid of the word of God cannot properly shepherd their own children's heart, right? You can't instruct what you first don't possess. You can't expect from them what you don't model. Obedience must be taught by precept and example. So question back to you. Is your life a good model, a good example of submission and obedience? And it comes back to you and your example. Therefore, teach and model obedience. Do your children see you cheerfully acknowledge your roles of authority, such as church leadership, government, Do you obey the traffic laws? Wives, do your children see you willingly submit to your husbands? Husbands, how do you speak about your employer? Again, do you, as Psalm 145 declares, meditate? Do you meditate on the glories of God's majesty and his wonderful works? Pastor John has said, as parents, it is our duty not only to teach our sons and daughters the concepts of wise living, 
but also to model wisdom for them so that they understand that this wisdom is the noblest and purest of all. Now, you thought coming here, I was going to tell you how to get your children to fall asleep at night, right? Or to get little Billy to eat his peas at dinner, okay? I said I wanted to encourage you and challenge you. All right. Really, though, in all of this, all of this showing our children their hearts, antagonizing them, their sin, that's kind of the defense, it's really more about being an advocate of the gospel, having a passion to influence them. That's what we're talking about in this section, having a passion to influence them. In other words, persuade them that they need to know God. It's your top job as a parent to be an evangelist, to show them what they're, miss- what they're missing. A parent needs to be an evangelist in the home. We know Matthew 28, the Great Commission, making disciples. That means in your home. And Acts 1.8 says, you will be my witnesses in the home. 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through you as parents, imploring your children on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And this is a, cru- a crucial role. Ryle puts it, as we train our children, we should, quote, train with this thought continually before our eyes that the soul of your child is the first thing to be considered, end quote. So God intends the family to be the instrument for passing on biblical truth from one generation to another. Psalm 145.4, again, it's right there in front of you. One generation will praise your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. In other words, one generation will evangelize to another. Spurgeon said, fathers and mothers are the most natural agents for God to use in the salvation of their children. So the proper focus of biblical parenting is redemptive, is redemptive. And parents are responsible to lead their children to Christ. Your training in all of the life situation of your kids, of your family situation, must reflect a commitment to constantly pointing and urging, that's what we mean by leading, your children to Christ. Christ, who alone can remedy the heart problem that causes them to love unrighteousness. Now, again, technically, we have nothing to do with our child's salvation. We can't regenerate them, can't save them, can't make them more savable. However, God uses us as we are to be faithful instruments unto him. So genuine faith is something only divine grace can prompt, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And God works sovereignly in your child's heart to draw them to himself. Their salvation is a matter that must ultimately be settled between them and God. So let's be faithful in what we have responsible for and spend less energy trying to control that which we do not have responsible for, responsibility for. Every child is wholly fallen and hence wholly in need of redemption. So they must be taught about God, his nature, his law, his love, and his forgiveness, or as Psalm 145 says in verses 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and grace and mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. That's the passion you're bringing to your kids as you are being an advocate of the gospel to them in your home. Tell them of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose words and works are are those of goodness and grace and compassion. And because that, it, that is, so he came into the world to save sinners, to be merciful to sinners. We speak of God's 
wondrous works of redemption. We speak of deliverance and punishment. We are to proclaim who God is, what he's done, what he's promised. Tell your children of a great God and what they're missing out on if they don't trust him. At the same time, they must be shown from Scripture their sinful condition and its horrible effects in time and eternity, and that no external works or behavior can earn him salvation. That they must also be taught to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Acts 16. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So salvation is a sovereign work of God, but there is human responsibility involved. Faith is involved. And faith is ultimately a matter of submission and obedience to God, is it not? Trust and obey, for there's no greater, greater way to what? You can sing it. Be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Salvation begins with obedience. You ever thought of that? Now it's the Holy Spirit that prompts us, regenerates us to be able to have the faith and repent and turn and turn to, turn from and turn to. But faith is ultimately a matter of submission and obedience to God. This is the ultimate reason we teach and expect submission and obedience. All right, so we're teaching and modeling and expecting obedience and submission in the home. Obviously, so the community of the home is one that we enjoy, that your children are a blessing to you and to others. But we're teaching that so that they understand humility. They understand at some point that there is a God that they will ultimately will be. Every knee will bow, but you want to urge them to bow now. So we teach and model obedience and submission so they understand what it means to place their faith in God. Because faith is ultimately a matter of what? Obedience and submission. So fathers and mothers need to lead their children to continually face up to their own sin and to turn to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and resurrection as their only hope. And it is only in Christ that the child who has experienced conviction of sin may find hope, forgiveness, salvation, and power to live in a manner which is pleasing to God. And only after regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will that child be shaped in a way to manifest spiritual virtue and the genuine fruit of the Spirit. And through such teaching and training, they will learn disciplined conduct but also be frustrated by the laws of God. They will learn what sin is, transgression against the law. Parents, you parents, therefore, again, you antagonize children of their sin. Why? Just to underscore this again, you are to use your child's inability to live a perfect life of obedience to explain their need for a Savior and their need for divine grace and power to live a holy life. So in this, we prepare their hearts to receive the gospel. Now, you can't affect spiritual change, but you can train the mind so that it can apprehend or grasp the meaning of an understanding things and position their heart. In other words, prepare and cultivate their heart for response by your training and your admonition. And the focus, the training, teaching, and preparing must again be continual. Remind and extol to your kids who God is, what he's done, what he's promised. Praise him as such, not your child, God. If your kids don't worship God, as I said, they will worship something else, all right? Something other awesome. They're always going to look for the awesome thing. You want to put God in front of them. Talked about Joshua already in 
Deuteronomy 6, Joshua told the people what God commanded to him. He said, repeat to your sons, right, what God has commanded me to say. In other words, it must be an everyday, all-day reality. When they wake up, when they lie down, when you walk, every time. God must reign in your mind. And if he does, then a Psalm 145 attitude and passion will follow. So that's what Joshua told them, all right, as they go out and conquer. First place they they conquer, what do they do? What river do they cross? Jordan River, all right? Miraculous deal. What does Joshua instruct them to do? Build a column of what? Stones, right? As a memorial, right? To remind them. So when the kids walk by, what's this pile of stones here? Well, let me tell you about who God is, what he did, what he promised, what he's accomplished, all right? That's why they did that. Constant visual reminder. Joshua dies in Judges 2, all right? Then immediately, basically says Joshua dies. In Joshua 2.10 through 13 says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord the God of their fathers who had brought them up out of Egypt. Then they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Pretty amazing, right? You got Joshua. He dies, his generation dies, and boom, they immediately go after the Baals. All right? But in spite of that, we're still to put up those memorials. Our life is a memorial. Opening the word of God is a memorial to them, right? Telling them of the cross is a memorial to them. Reminding them, urging them. And it's to be, as we say in Psalm 145, a constant joyful conversation, all right? You have with your kids about the awesomeness of God. It's just woven in your life, right? It's not like me up here right now in a pulpit telling your kids, you're a sinner and you're going to hell and, you know. That's not what we're talking about. It's just a joyful conversation you have about the awesomeness of God. As you rise up, as you lie down, they need to know Bible stories, but they also need to know he is just as great today, yesterday, and forever. And more than sing loudly, verse 7 says, shout joyfully. Worship like God is real. Verses 8 and 9, he has a great love and mercy, and he forgives sins because he's easier to forgive. We shout joyfully. The fourth point that we could make if we have the time in verses 10 through 18 is a gratitude towards a great God. But if you'll allow me, I want to skip to our last point, starting at Psalm 145, 18, and talk about the nearness to God and nearness to God's presence and his word. It says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. All right. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as a reminder, where we started in Psalm 145, primarily we have a commitment to Jesus, to the Word of God and the God of the Word. We're to love Jesus and love him in a specific way. Let me read, uh, I alluded to John 14, 23, 24a before. Let me read it. Jesus answered them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make him or make our home with him and whoever does not love me does not keep my words 
All right, so a love for Jesus is shown in obedience to his word and submission to him. Your life must be tethered to his words. Again, do your kids know you love the Bible and that you're living out the Bible? They know why you do certain things, why we as a family do it. Do they know the scriptural principle behind that? You are no better a parent, again, than you are a spouse than you are a child of God. Now, we've discussed being a child of God and being a parent, but that commitment to your role as a spouse is crucial, and really, more importantly, it's crucial, and it shows your trust in God's word defining your roles as a husband and a wife. And for you single parents out there, I want you to listen to this next part as a bigger message of trusting in God's sovereignty and providence in your life. So whether he has put you in a marriage or not, the issue is to glorify him in submission and obedience to his plan in your life. In other words, trust the Lord, trust the truth, and lean not on your own understanding. So I want to look now as marriage as a tangible way to live out the truth of the gospel. Psalm 145 here is talking about living in truth, shouting the truth. And your marriage, your love for your spouse is a reflection of your obedient love for Jesus and a reflection of the gospel in that it shows this, that submission required for salvation. Submission is a form of repentance in that you're turning from pleasing self to pleasing God. And you must be committed to the uniqueness of the marriage relationship. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it's, it's an exclusive leaving of our parents and cleaving relationships. Some of you have not left your parents yet. Proverbs 5.15-19 describes the intimate physical relationship that God has physically created for our spouse. And obviously there's no other friendship or uh, parent-child relationship that shares any of these characteristics. Marriage is unique in every sense of the word, and we are committed to our spouse because it is uniquely designed and required by God. Turn to Ephesians 5, um, starting at verse 25. And this shows, again, a, a picturesque relationship illustrating Christ's relationship with the church. So again, I said marriage is an illustration of the gospel. So by living out your marriage biblically, you're going to be living out the gospel in front of your children. And as a reminder of the bigger picture, the husband submits to the divine authority to achieve a gospel outcome. All right? Husband submits to the divine divine authority to achieve a gospel outcome. The marriage is about God's reputation and his witness through the family to the world and to your children, right? That's the big picture of what's going on in your marriage. Christ's love for the church is the pattern for the husband's love of the wife. One commenter said, marriage is a reflection of the gospel. It's the reflection of the divine relationship between Christ and the church. It's an earthly representation of that which makes it beautiful, holy, holy, and awesome, something that can be beautifully glorifying to God. It is an earthly rendering of a spiritual reality that is a lot better than the earthly one. End of quote. So your marriage is the greatest opportunity you will have to teach your children what you really believe about submission and authority. And again, that's where faith starts. It will show what you really believe about friendship and affection and love. It's one of the greatest ways to live out the truth that you proclaim. Again, more is caught 
than taught and you teach by your life. So you need to be consistent with the word in your life. And submission is the whole subject of this text. It says in Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another. That's all of us in all relationships, especially those in the family. There is to be a mutual submission among all the parties. Either the family is the whole submitting to the father's leadership, the father submitting himself in love to the fulfillment of the wife's essential needs, the children submitting themselves to the parent's authority, and even the parents submitting themselves to the children's needs by providing loving nurture and admonition without provoking them to wrath. So submission is the guiding theme and principle. Now, Christ is a rightful leader and ruler of everything, yet in love he, uh, love and humility, he took the servant's role and washed his disciples' feet. That, man is our role. We are to actively love and serve our wives. And what kind of love of that is that? Well, Pastor John went through a lot of this this morning. It's a sacrificial one. The reason the divine order is because the wife is the weaker vessel, and that's as a rule, physically weaker and in a socially weaker position. And the husband therefore owes her sacrifice and protection. The spirit-filled husband loves his wife for what he can do for her, not what she can do for him. It's that as Christ loved the church like love in verse 25. It's also a purifying love that's seen in verses 26 and 27. Christ wants to clothe the church in a purified, glorious splendor. And he gave his life so we might have his holiness and virtue that we might be sanctified. The analogy for us men as husbands, if we truly love our wives, her purity must be our supreme concern. The husband's love is also a caring love. The spirit-filled husband in love, as opposed to in, in obedience to her, submits and sacrifices himself to his wife to bring her joy so that she is content to satisfy her. You see that in verses 28 and 29a. And we are also, as, apostle, as the apostle says, to nourish and cherishes her. So this suggests that he is to provide for her needs, to feed her both figuratively, um, spiritually, and literally, and help her bring her to spiritual maturity in the second half of verse 29. So the meaning of love is summed up in submission. This manner of love is sacrifice defined by Christ's self-giving love for his church, and the motive is sacredness in verse 32 and 33. Marriage is a sacred institution and union. Done rightly, here's the point, it brings glory to God and it is a testimony to your children. What does it say about wives? Wives, subject yourself to your own husband as to the Lord, verse 22 and in verse 33, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Why does the wife submit? Again, marriage is a picture and object lesson of Christ and the church. A woman who refuses to submit to her husband corrupts the meaning of the divine institution. In addition, the woman's submission to her husband is established in the order of creation. It is a natural and proper order of things. Women were created for men. 1 Corinthians 11, For a man does not originate from a woman, but woman from men. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but a woman for the man's sake. Here's the point. Eve was created to be a helper to Adam, to keep him company, to support and encourage him, to work alongside him. 
She was created as a gift for the express purpose of being his wife and helpmate for the purposes of God, not to pursue an agenda independent of him. She compliments him to fulfill his God-honoring mission, and her role as his wife was a token of God's marvelous grace to man. And even now, a woman's submission to her husband is a wonderful expression of divine grace. And gals, if you abandon that role, it's like stealing God's grace from your family. God's order in the home reflects his gracious purposes, not some sinister plot to put women down. The way women submit to their husbands is like the way the church submits to Christ. That is with love for him as a primary motive for obedience. Her submission, a wife's submission, calls for a willing and agreeable heart. And she should follow her husband because of her deep, willful, determined love for him, just as Christ or the church follows Christ out of love for him. And in addition, she should obey her husband because he is her head, just as Christ is the head of the church. So the wife who willingly and lovingly responds to her husband's leadership with such a spirit honors the Lord, her husband, her church, and her children, and herself. All right, moving on finally, verses 19 and 20. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear the cry for help and save him. The Lord watches over all who love him, but he will destroy all the wicked. So there's no fulfillment apart from the fear of the Lord, and you won't fear God until you fill your life um, with the word of God. So the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning wisdom, and wisdom is found in God's word. The fear of God is really the key that unlocks fulfillment. It's the awe of God, the the awe of God's word. So you are to teach, finally, the fear of the Lord, the awe-inspiring awareness and reverence of his power, holiness, and glory and obedience to the Lord. This teaching is literally speaking of God's awesomeness. Now, again, who can change your child's heart? Who? Say it. God, all right? But you as parents are responsible for faithfully and accurately living and teaching the word. Again, Deuteronomy 6, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commands, which I'm commanding you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So genuine wisdom starts with the fear of God. The fear of God is the one true foundation of wisdom we must teach our children. Successful parenting, listen up, literally begins with instilling in our children the proper fear of God. Deuteronomy uh, 31, the people are sent, uh, assembled and they're told to learn the fear of the Lord your God, to fear the Lord your God. Now, developing the fear of of God in your children involves, um, and this is written a little, little wrong, it should say, knowing God is the first thing. Knowing God. Knowing God. Let a wise man not boast in his wisdom. Let him, let not him, let not, excuse, the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So we need to teach our children God's attributes and his mighty deeds. And his attributes can be taught to a very young child, even though we may have to use 
simple terminology. Um, Ryle said, but if you love your children, let the simple Bible be everything in the training of their souls and let all other books go down and take second place. Care not so much for their being mighty in the catechism as for them being mighty in the scriptures. This is a training, believe me, that God will honor. The psalmist says of him, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. And I think that he gives an especial blessing to all who try to magnify it among men. See that your children read the Bible reverently. Train them to look on it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, written by the Holy Ghost himself, all true, all profitable, and able to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which which is in Christ Jesus. See that they read it regularly. Train them to regard it as their soul's daily food, as a thing essential to their soul's daily health. I know well you cannot make this thing any more than a form, but there is no telling the amount of sin which a mere form may indirectly restrain. See that they read it all. You need not shrink bringing any doctrine before them. You need not fancy that the leading doctrines of Christianity are things which children can't understand. He says in ending this quote, children understand far more of the Bible than we're apt to suppose. We are to develop a fear of God, secondly, by worshiping God. All right? All life is an opportunity to worship. What is your child's heart attitude? What is your child's heart attitude towards food, computer games, TV, music, and all other pleasures? Do they easily or reluctantly put them aside when someone else needs help? Is there any habit or pursuit your child will not readily settle aside for the needs of others? All right, even good hobbies can bring out lushly, fleshly lust and covetousness, which amounts to idolatry. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Question, can your child read and find things in the Bible themselves? What will you teach about prayer and meditation? What verses and passages Will he memorize so that you won't sin, that he won't sin against God? Great verse from Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Again, bring it back to you. Does your child see you or know of your devotions? Your teaching, by example, whether you know it or not, is going to influence your child. You want your child to develop a great love for God. Hopefully, it is a love that you have yourself. He can't love one whom he does not know, and he can't know God without being taught the Word of God. So teach your children to love Christ's name and his holy name. But you must first love his name and walk in his ways yourself. The last one is pleasing God, pleasing God. This includes helping your children learn to make decisions biblically and using God's word as a roadmap. Does your child lean on his own understanding or in all his ways, including decisions, will he acknowledge the Lord, believing that God will make his path straight? Your child should fear violating God's standard, not merely yours. If your children grow up fearing only your displeasure, what will they do when you're not there? Therefore, 
putting God's word and teaching of God's word in front of them is important. Teaching your children to fear the Lord includes challenging them with judgment that is coming. The negative aspects of the fear of God has to do with dread and the terror of it. And even believers should have a measure of this kind of fear, which acts as a protection from sinning. But unbelievers should have a fear of God that is most intense and, and terrifying in its sense. Exodus 17.2 is interesting. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So, when you discipline, let your children know that they are sinning against God. They have an issue with God. And this is a way to call out their sin and show them a need for the Savior. But they are to fear the Lord. They are to fear those who, um, not to fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. One writer said, The fear of the Lord is the repentant faith of a sinner brought low by God's holiness, bent the knee to his lordship, trusted him alone for salvation on the basis of his works, God's works alone. The fear of the Lord works its way out from the heart in behavior. It doesn't work its way in by behavior. So let me just sum this up. Now, there may be many reasons why you selected this session. I want to make sure that you didn't select it because you were fearful of what would happen to your child or fearful that your parenting wasn't being effective. Rather than being motivated by fear, we must understand what it means to trust God in every area of our lives, including parenting. But we must trust God. What does trusting God mean? It means we study scripture to learn biblical principles in all areas of our life, and we put a God-pleasing effort in and trust God with the outcome. Trusting God provides hope in light of the fact that we many times fail as parents. Raise your hand if you failed as a parent, right? Welcome to the club. All right, we're all failing. But God can do anything, and no man can thwart God's Will, I always like to ask, how many of you came from a non-Christian home? All right? It's usually a good third of the class. So Scripture is sufficient to guide us. God will guide us one way or the other. If we are seeking Him first, like Matthew 16.33 says, that He will provide what is needed for us. Biblical parenting does not involve quick fixes. And rather than a series of short-term solutions to a particular problem, parenting is a multifaceted relationship with your child that lasts a lifetime. So the focus should be on perseverance. We're in it for the long haul. Galatians 6, 9 says, Do not lose heart for doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So many situations you have will come up that don't have quick and easy solutions. Again, it's simple, but it is hard work, and you may not see results quickly. So you're going to have to learn to persevere in discipline and instruction and, and prayer. But persevere and be encouraged, all right? You are building a relationship that lasts a lifetime, and your efforts will be pl- blessed by God. And you are being that Psalm 145 witness to your children and the world. You are praising God's works and declaring his mighty acts. Let me pray for you all. Father, I pray for... These parents, I praise, pray for um, that you would bring wisdom to them as they are raising their children. 
as well as the ability to trust in your providence, as well as to be faithful to you and bringing your, their children up in biblical principles and to glorify you through their obedience to be faithful. James 1.5 says to ask you for wisdom and it will be given liberally without reproach because you are a great and providential and sovereign God. We pray and I pray on behalf of these parents that you would give them that wisdom. I pray for their children's salvation. I pray for every child's soul that's represented by the parents and grandparents in this room, Father. Only you can save them. Only you can change their heart through the inworking of your spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you are active even today in the hearts of the children represented here, Father, that you would use the efforts of these parents to bring the truth of their sin, but also truth of a Savior that loves them and wants to save them. I pray for the increased understanding and knowledge of God in each one of these parents' lives, Father, that their parenting would be marked more by them being a child themselves, a child unto you, faithful in obedience, love, and submission. And that would drive their marriage and their parenting, Father. All this done to your glory. Amen.